Hi there. I'm glad that you are tuning in to uh, this uh, very uh, sweet and uh, hopefully delightful conference. And I uh, hope that uh, you've been encouraged by the message you've already heard. And uh, this time together, I pray that you'll be, in, will be a time of encouragement for you and a time in which you could uh, grow in uh, relationship with Christ. My name is Andre uh, Sava, and I'm one of the pastors of Trinity Community Church in uh, Clovis, California. We're in Central Valley of California, and uh, we are uh, praising God for the blessing we have to be able to uh, worship him here. Uh, This is not a Romanian church per se, but uh, we do have a a group of Romanians that they're meeting in our church or are part of our congregation. We have Romanian translation, and... um, Nevertheless, we, uh, we are just uh, enjoying worshiping God together through different means of, uh, um, of, of just worship him, uh, worshiping him on Sundays and Sunday school classes and, and uh, beyond. And again, we are very uh, thankful for the partnership we have with Romanian churches. And I, as a Romanian uh, born and raised there, I am keeping close in touch with the Romanian uh, community. And I want to thank uh, Val and uh, the RBYA team for inviting me to be part of this conference. And I pray that they would, uh, uh, they are feel, feeling blessed and encouraged by the whole conference altogether. In different circumstances, we would love to be face-to-face, but right now we're just uh, having to do with uh, what we have available, and we praise God for that. Let me start with prayer uh, this morning. And... Uh, uh, or the time when you're watching this, and this is morning right now, and I just uh, wanted to ask the Lord to bless this time together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, uh, I pray that you would speak to our hearts wherever we are. I pray that you'll help us, Lord, to think through uh, the topic of worship. I pray that you'll help us to think biblically and thoughtfully and in a way that exalts you, Lord, through to, uh, to the, to, through this uh, topics and through this uh, questions that we might have or things that we might be thinking about, Lord, I pray that you'll help us uh, to really see Christ exalted. Uh, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And as we approach your word, I pray that you'll speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me just start by uh, saying that I'm, again, I'm honored that I can speak on this uh, topic of worship that leads to repentance. And as I thought about the topic of worship, I remember the words of a professor of mine from seminary. His name is Donald Whitney. He wrote the book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And in that book, he states that to worship God means to ascribe the proper worth to God, to magnify his worthiness of praise, or better, to approach and address God as he is worthy. So... To worship God is to ascribe this proper worth to God. Or, as I said, to approach and address God as he is worthy. And if you ask, ask the question, why should we worship God? I hope that you see reasons all throughout the book of Psalms and through the book of, uh, books of the Bible all together for, for why should you worship God. You, the Bible actually calls us to worship God for the creation. Uh, we are called to worship God for what he created around us. We are called to worship God for who he is and how he revealed himself in his word. And who he is in the way that um, we discover him through his word. We are called to worship God for who he is and what he has done. How should we worship God? Uh, we should worship God in spirit and in truth. 
And First um, Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. Uh, even this idea that we can say things that they are uh, God-worthy, uh, they're only because of the Spirit of God in us. So the way we worship God is through Spirit and truth. Again, I, that's not necessarily the topic of my talk this uh, morning, but I want us to focus on... Um, on repentance, but before that, I do think that it's important to 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 cover this main uh, points of worship. So, uh, since worship is focusing on and responding to God, regardless of what else we are doing, we are not worshiping if we're actually not thinking about God. We, we could think, we can sing holy, 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 or we can listen to a sermon, but if we are not thinking about God, if we are not actually uh, ascending, ascending to those words and uh, transfer them through our hearts to actually think through and feel those uh, words, then most likely we, we're not going to worship God because we can just pay lip service, but we're not actually thinking about what we're saying. Sometimes we, we see this uh, when we're in church. We hear all these uh, prayers and we just say amen, but our minds are totally off thinking about something else. When we do that, we are actually not worshiping God. We're going through the motions of worshiping God, but we're not actually worshiping God. So there is a sense in which all things done in obedience to the Lord, even everyday things at work and at home are acts of worship. But these things are not substitutes for the direct worship of God. Again, Don Whitney pointed it out. Because we, we do say that worship is not just the event of worship. When we come together and we sing, we pray, and we listen to God's word, uh, teach God's word. Uh, it's not only about that. We get that. And, and I hope that you, you know that. That worship is a lifestyle. It's what we do from Sunday to Sunday, to, from Monday to Saturday night also. Not only what happens on a Sunday. But, again... There is a sense that you also worship God when you are uh, directly doing that, whether you're at home or with believers, in public or in private. Uh, and this leads me to the next point here. When should we worship God all the time? As I said, we are uh, worshipful beings and we are supposed to worship God as a lifestyle. But we're doing it privately or publicly. And we are called to do to worship God in a direct way. Again, we're not. I'm not talking here about the day-to-day acts of just living that are, in a sense, worshipful to God. I'm talking about direct worship. So, when you are opening God's Word at home, or when you are singing at home, or you have a devotional time with the Lord, you are, in a sense, worshiping God in a direct way. You know. Uh, but we also do that in public. Now, what's interesting is that what we actually do in private at home will reflect what we're doing in public. Meaning that the ways in which we see God in, our pri- in the privacy of our lives, the way we see God individually is reflected in the way we seek to, to worship God publicly. Uh, Jeffrey Thomas, another theologian, said there's no way that those who neglect secret worship can know communion with God in the public services of the Lord's Day. So in other words, if you have this idea that, that 
you know, you only go to worship God on a Sunday. That's the only time you, and you have the time for God. And, and that's when you just um, God, go out of your bounds to express your love for God and how much you, uh, you feel for Him and all that. But you're actually not having any private worship. Uh, throughout the week you're not actually in a communion with god and the most likely what you're doing is a little bit of a show on a sunday morning you you are pretending or you're putting on this um, facade in a sense that you are telling god hey i'm all for you but i'm not really for you once i step out of those doors of the sanctuary or the place where people of god are meeting so what i would like us to do today uh, is to actually trace it back to, to the private life, uh, because what we do in public usually reflects what we think of God in our privacy, uh, in our private lives. And the way we see God uh, in our private, uh, private lives and in the, as individuals is reflected, again, in the way we seek to worship God publicly and vice versa. It's very, very interesting that that's the case. A pastor once said that we have developed techniques adopted from the world to enhance the worship experience. Artful worship enhancements of itself is not a crime, he says. But if the substitution of genuine worship for artificial engagement of the senses becomes a substitution for the real presence of God, that is destructive to both our lives and to God's purposes. So if you substitute the genuine worship of God for artificial engagement of the senses, you're actually doing a substitution for the real presence of God. That's the problem, and that's destructive. So the solution to recover a biblical view of worship is to actually recover a biblical view of the character of God, and I would say primarily the holiness of God, the greatness and the uniqueness of God and, and what makes God unique and makes him separate than us. There are many uh, attributes like that. They're called incommunicable attributes, attributes that they cannot be reflected by human beings. They are not communicated to us. It's just unique to God. And yes, you can talk about omnipresence and omni-knowledge. He knows all things. His presence everywhere uh, or, or he's eternal. But one of the things that is very, very unique to God is that that he is uniquely holy in a way that we are not. Now, we are called to be holy. We're called to model that. But we can never, ever be holy as God is holy in that specific sense. David Wells, professor of theology at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, says in his book, God in the Whirlwind, that, quote, it is time for evangelical churches to recover the biblical emphasis on the holiness of God because without such an emphasis and a vision of the burning holiness of God, worship loses its awe to the, the truth of his word, loses its ability to compel, obedience loses its virtue, and the church loses its moral authority. So he says it's time to just revive the biblical emphasis on the holiness of God, because without such a vision of the burning holiness of God, you lose awe of who God is. Now, I grew up, like some of you, uh, in a Romanian church in Romania that was characterized by a pretty high view of God. And uh, our worship services in Romania, as there are some of you, uh, some of them here in the United States in Romanian churches, were very solemn and, and full of reverence. 
jokes, fooling around, or making loud noises, or even running around the pulpit area were completely out of place in the church. And I remember just how scared we were as children to even be in those areas because a parent or someone in the church's leadership was always watching us and keeping an eye on us as we were in the church building. Now, at that point in time, we didn't realize that there wasn't such a big deal about the church building. Um, the idea is that God is actually um, working or, or living in us as a church. But nevertheless, the church building is a place of uh, holiness or where the God's presence has seen a little bit more than in other places. We were in God's house and we were supposed to act like it. And as I said, as I grew older and I started to read the scriptures, I realized that uh, at the end of the day, you know, God is not only present in a building, but I did appreciate actually, uh, especially as, as I go and visit other locations, other cultures, especially the American culture, I appreciated the, at least the, the reverence that is given to God. Uh, this idea that God is a very high and, and, uh, and lifted up God, that he's transcendent, that he is beyond what we see. It transcends our human senses and our human capabilities. Uh, our ideas, our thoughts and opinions about him. He's above all that. He's greater than anything we can fathom. And again, I appreciate that because I, I, I know that that's, that's a, a healthy way of, of seeing God. Now, there is a downside to it when you see God only high and lifted up and you, if you don't realize that it, it's actually among us, that he's imminent. And that's something that I learned by coming more in an American culture. And I remember, though, the shock I had when I first uh, experienced maybe 13 or 14 years ago uh, going in a mega church in Chicago area. And it was this one of the largest churches in the world and I remember going in one of their worship services and I was just shocked at what I saw and uh, just the the lack of uh, reverence for God I, I couldn't believe my eyes uh, I saw this pastor who was just very uh, uh, dressed very I felt like very uh, immodestly in some ways you know the worship leader skinny jeans with holes in it and they put on a rock and roll service people look like they just rolled out of their beds and and for me was coming from a romanian uh culture it was just very uh shocking now after a few more years and trying to understand okay where are the people coming from i understand one thing on the plus part was that in a sense in american culture you you get the imminence of God more than maybe you get in an Eastern European culture, meaning uh, God is not only transcendent, not only high and lifted up, but is also part of our lives. He's with us and among us. And, and Jesus did say that he come, came to live among us, you know, and he's living in us and he's with us. And Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters, and we are his friends if we are doing what we're supposed to be doing. But again, I think there's a balance between the transcendence and the imminence. I, I think there's a balance between uh, classical Romanian churches that are very, very rigid in some ways and a church that, you know, go on the other side and be like Willow Creek or uh, 
Saddleback or other mega churches out there or uh, Elevation Church, which I, I think they go way beyond what I, I think the Bible seems to be indicating that we should reverent, have reverence to God and how we should put on a worship service and how we should exalt Christ. And again, I, I think it's seen in the people's lives. Uh, the way that they worship. But for a few moments, I want us to explore for, uh, for us uh, today, uh, at least in my message, uh, just a few verses from Isaiah chapter 6. And I wanted us to look at Isaiah because I remember being in the service at Willow Creek, and I already gave the name of, uh, away uh, when I said that this is from Chicago area mega church. And, and I remember being in another church then soon after that. Uh, it was a smaller church in California, uh, but mega church still was thousands and thousands of people. And I remember as I was looking at that, I'm, I'm not tr- I was not trying to uh, only be critical in a, a negative way. I was trying to think through, okay, is it just cultural? Is, is it... Uh, is it uh, something that I don't like, music preference, or, or is it legitimately, legitimately a, a biblical reason why I feel that this is not what it should be? And one of the things that I've been asking myself then, and I ask myself today, whether I, uh, I'm in a service in an American church, any church in the United States, or whether I'm in Romania, or I got to travel in different parts of the world, I'm always asking myself this question. Do I worship in that moment and do we worship in a way that if we would be confronted with an Isaiah uh, 6 moment, and you'll see what I'm talking about, would, we, would I feel like God will, would be honored in, in my presence? Or I would be honoring God as I stay in his presence. Would he feel okay to be in our midst in the type, with the type of worship we're doing? Does our worship reflect anything close to what Isaiah seemed to experience about God. So let me tell you, or let me read to you what Isaiah experienced. This is Isaiah chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can follow me. I'm going to read the first seven verses. And listen to what he says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood a seraphim. Each had six wings, with a two cover, he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand the burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Amen. So what I want us to see here, a few things in this text, is the image that this guy, that this guy Isaiah, has of God himself. That the image that is uh, similar to what I think God has or, or uh, experiences right now in, um, in heaven, and because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the, the image that Isaiah saw thousands of years ago it's the same image that that we could if we had the 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 heavens open we would see the same thing today 
The question is, do we get that image of God's holiness when we worship him, whether privately or in a Sunday morning service? Do we realize who we worship? Because if we do, then the immediate effect of that, it would be repentance, asking for forgiveness, running to God to, to forgive us. Even if we are believers, we ask for mercies every day. We ask that his mercy would be renewed. Why? Because we get a new glimpse of God's holiness. By the way, interesting. A lot of people praying for revival, and they've been praying for many, many years for that. But do you know that one of the greatest characteristics of revivalists throughout the world has been, and throughout centuries, have been, has been that when revivals happen is when God's word is preached in a way that lifts up God's holiness so high and so great that people get a glimpse of who God is and get a glimpse of themselves. Do we get that through our worship services, through the way we read scripture? So I want us to see a few things about what Isaiah experiences here. And, and again, if you have a Bible, you can look with me here. So he sees this, this God that is transcendent, that is beyond all things. And uh, let me just give you some context ideas here or some, some thoughts here about God's uh, or the context of uh, Isaiah 6. Uh, Isaiah writes somewhere in uh, year 750 or 745 to 722. Now, this specific event happens in 740 BC, most likely. And at that time, the northern kingdom uh, of Israel was, was made up of 10 tribes that had different nation. And then the south, southern kingdom was made up of just a couple tri- tribes and uh, Judah and Benjamin, and they are called Judah. And, and Isaiah speaks primarily uh, to Judah, but he's also directing some of his prophecies to Israel, to the no- 10 northern tribes. But here he is in the southern kingdom, and King Uzziah, who was one of the, the few good kings that ruled over Judah, over the, the southern kingdom, has died. And after a long, long reign of around 50 years. Now, he, even though he wasn't a perfect king, uh, he was deemed as a good king uh, overall. And you see Isaiah being in this very interesting situation where he doesn't know what the future brings. He doesn't know if another leader would come and uh, would be a good king or a bad king. He is in a time of uncertainty. But it's interesting to also think about for a second why Uzziah died. Uzziah, who was the king that ruled for almost 50 years, uh, he died because at one point, uh, things were going so well for him, he, he forgot that he's just a king. He forgot that God is God and he's not. Because things were just going great for the kingdom, at one point he took, up, took it upon himself to go in the temple and uh, actually give sacrifices that were not allowed for him to do. He was from the tribe of Judah. He was not a Levite. He was not from the tribe of Levi. But nevertheless, he goes in the temple and he brings an offering. And the, the priest and everyone says, don't do it, don't do it. And the moment he steps in and he, he pretty much goes beyond what his attributes were, all of a sudden God punishes him and he has, gets this disease that he dies later off. And for years he's actually secluded. I think he gets leper. Uh, what we can see from the scriptures is that he gets uh, something that is contagious and bad and he's isolated and secluded for the rest of his uh, years. And then he dies in that seclusion. Why? Because he's overstepped his boundaries. He became too familiarized with God. 
And I pray that we are not like that. I know in my life I have moments when I'm like, oh, I, I, I got this. I have this all figured out. But you see, we don't get that God is so different than us. God is transcendent. God is lifted up. He says in he says here, I died, or King Isaiah, excuse me, died, and I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He saw God lifted up. He saw high and lifted up. As we worship God, we have to remember that he is above us, that he's beyond us. He's lifted up, he's transcendent, he's sovereign king, he's infinitely majestic, he's glorious. God is God and we are not. And this is one of the most helpful attitudes we can cultivate when we meet to worship God. In the Bible, when various people encounter God's presence, interesting, they were never flippant or casual. They were always filled with trembling and fear. God is different god is high and lifted up he was also interesting he was on a throne what does that mean is that a reminder for isaiah that even though king uzziah and the earthly kings were were not in place anymore in power they died uh and and there's uncertainty of who's going to rule the country the reminder for Isaiah is that God is on the throne. He's always on the throne. He rules despite of what any human being might say or believe. Or whoever is king or president, even in today's world, you have to remember that ultimately God is the one who's on the throne and he allows them to rule in his behalf. And it says here, he was on a lofty throne. God is above any king, above all kings. And then it says, the train of his robe filled the temple. And that has to do with his majesty. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen any of the weddings that happen in the royal, British royal household in uh, the last few years. But usually when they uh, broadcast those weddings, you, you see that one of the, the features, the main features of the wedding is when the the bride comes in she has this long 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 gone uh, gown and, and a, a bridal uh, a bridal dress or a bride dress a dress for the bride and you're wondering why is that so long what, what's the point of that and the point of that is to show beauty and majesty and uh, just loftiness and greatness and royalty now interesting here Isaiah sees the robe of God just is so big that it's all wrapped around all throughout this temple. Now, another interesting thing is that God is on the throne while, in, in, interesting, in the same time, I, Isaiah has this vision in the temple. You know why? Because God is both king and priest he is the god the god who lives in the temple and later on we find about jesus as being both the high priest and the king of kings i don't have time to go more into that but that's a very interesting concept here anyone anyway you see here that he he's filled with uh glory and then it says verse two above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew now, now, that's an interesting uh, verse here about the seraphim. Now, if you don't know about angels, seraphim is an angel, and it's called seraphim because it has six wings. The cherubim has four wings. 
But a seraphim was an angel that was made by God, and these beings are actually perfect beings. They are, uh, they are not the, the, the angels that actually sinned against God with Satan, so are not the demons we are, which, which are sinful. These are the sinless uh, angels, and they are perfect as they are. By the way, if you see an angel in his full glory, everyone in the Bible that has an experience with an angel, they were... Uh, amazed and they were in awe and fear of these angels because they're so pure and full of light. Now think about this for a second. These guys, these beings who are pure and perfect and they're full of light, they need to cover themselves because God is even greater than them. God is so much more pure than even the created beings. They're already pure here. That's an amazing thing. There's a huge difference, someone pointed out, between infinite perfection and finite created perfection. Huge difference between eternal glory and finite given glory, like the angels have here. There's a difference between the creator and the creation. And they're covering their faces because they're afraid of God's glory and holiness. And it's interesting, with two, they cover their feet. Why would that be? Now, we don't know for sure. It's just speculations. But some people think because they were, these guys were, were flying, the two, they're flying, their two wings are flying, they cannot actually bow. And one of the ways in which they show uh, reverence towards God is by covering their feet in a, in a way that they're, they're pointing towards the fact that they are wanting to bow towards God. The whole point is that these angels are afraid and are looking up to God because of his holiness. And they're crying out, interesting here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now why would they say three times, holy, holy, holy? Because in this, uh, in, the, in the culture, in this context of Isaiah, when it was written, uh, holy, um, holy, holy, holy means superlative. It, it was a way to, to say that God is uh, holy beyond anything that we've ever seen. In, in the Bible, in the Hebrew language, uh, there's not uh, the, the way that they, um, they talk about something being greater, or if you want to say the greatest, uh, you usually say uh, Twice the same word. For example, if you want to say the greatest king, you say king or you write king, king. Hence, you have the king of kings. Or if you want to say he is the greatest of the lords, you say lord, lord. He is the lord of lords. So that's how you construct superlative in Hebrew. But interesting enough, here is the only place in the Bible where you have double superlative. Where you have holy, holy, holy. He's the most holy of the whole world of the holiest of holiest he is even beyond that what does that mean that god is holy and as i said at the beginning i think this attribute it defines the godhead of god he is separate from all else he's the only one who's eternal he's self-sufficient independent and fully perfect god doesn't need anything that we could offer God is separate from us he's separate from everything that exists he's metaphysically unique what is that mean he is beyond the physical realm meta beyond or above the physical metaphysical unique there's no one like him the holiness of god indicates his moral separateness 
the morality of God is one of perfect purity, flawless, perfectly pure. This is crucial to understand so that we can understand what happened, uh, our salvation. Why do we need to be saved from God's holiness? Because God is so pure that nothing can stay in his presence unless it is made pure as well. So God is righteous. He is right. And in verse 4 it says, The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Think about that. Not only the windows and the walls were shaking, but the foundation of that building. The intensity of that worship is beyond comprehension. When these angels are singing, they're, they're, they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy. And by the way, they're doing that. They've been doing that from the day they were created to eternity future. They're going to be doing that forever. Why? Because God is worthy of praise. And it's beyond comprehension to have that picture and that the intensity of that worship. One day we will, I pray we will experience that. For I pray that we all experience that who are listening to this message. But it's interesting now, I don't have time to go into all of this, but it's interesting to see Isaiah's response to this. Verse 5, it says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am men of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response, it's one of utterly ruinous or, or helplessness. And this is from, comes from Isaiah. Isaiah was one of the most godlier people of his time. He, he was one of the scholars uh, of his time. He was the guy who was, he knew the word of God. Kings would counsel with him because they knew him as a godly man. As someone different than all the rest. He, he was above uh, in terms of morality, above the people of his time. Nevertheless, when he gets in the presence of God, when he sees God in person, and by the way, interesting thing, John 12, Jesus says, Isaiah saw my glory and he marveled at it. That was in Isaiah in John 12. Most likely, when Isaiah had this vision, he actually saw Jesus. When you think, oh, that's God the Father, you know, but I'm good friends with Jesus. He's a little bit less... Uh, uh, scary that's not true they actually they saw jesus here he has a vision of jesus and interesting it says here isaiah says well of me i am lost he doesn't say oh i am uh, i'm in trouble here I, I am not as clean as i should be or you know i'm a little bit sick i need a little bit of healing or i need to get my stuff together i need to clean up and, and put some clothes on no he says i'm utterly ruined I'm totally helpless. I'm totally destroyed. Why? Because when he sees God's holiness, he realizes his sinfulness. He realizes that he's not only sick, he's not only having some problem, he's utterly broken. The Bible puts it as we are totally dead in our sins and trespasses. If you are a human being in this planet and you don't have Christ in you, as God looks at you, he sees you as totally dead. Why? Because you've been infected with sin. It doesn't mean you only do only bad stuff. You might be doing good things. You're philanthropic. You might be doing acts of charity. You, you might be nice with older people in your neighborhood, with your grandma. You're carrying bags of groceries for them. You might be doing great stuff at times. But even those good things is God looks from heaven because your heart is not ultimately to give glory to him you haven't had a moment when you ask forgiveness of your sins christ does not pay for your sins you are still infected by sin even your good deeds the bible says are a dirty rag in front of him 
So my point is, Isaiah had a, a vision of who God is and totally broke him. He says, I am lost. I am a man of unclean leaves. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. You know what really gave him that picture? Was to see the king of glory. And I love what happens next here. How God initiates. The divinity initiates salvation. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal. That he had taken with tongues from the altars. From the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I love that because the Bible, in Ephesians 2, for example, it says that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We have, we have gone astray from God. But I love verse 4 in Ephesians 2. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy and love, he redeemed us for the great love he had for us. How did he do that? By sending his only son, his begotten son, to die for you and I. But before that, he had to live a perfect life that you and I cannot live. He lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived and cannot. And then he died on the cross, the death that you and I deserve. And the Bible says that he died on that cross thinking about or carrying our penalty, our sins on his shoulders. He became sin who knew no sin so that we who put our trust in him become the righteousness or have the righteousness of God that comes from Christ. We give him our sins and give, he gives us his righteousness. Here in this specific one, interesting, he touches his lips. And, I, and we're not sure exactly why would he touch his lips. Why doesn't Isaiah says, uh, say, you know, I am a man of unclean hands or unclean heart. But some, some people pointed out that most likely is because if you think about it, our hearts um, speak up or our lips um, speak what the heart says or feels. Out of the abundance, abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The, t- the tongue betrays what go- goes on in our hearts. And this is, why, this is why Isaiah says, I am a man who speaks bad things because feels bad things. Or I say things, but ultimately my heart is not there. And God, I love this, someone pointed out this, that God personalized forgiveness. He, he touched his everything, lips and everything included. From there, God personalized salvation from him. Let me close it up here and give some, give, give some applications. First is this idea that, that if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this message, I wanted to encourage you to think about who God is right now. I don't know what your image of God is, but I want you, or has been until now, but I want you to think about these verses again. Again, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is like this, and more than this right now, what Isaiah has seen. And again, most likely seen Christ here, a Christophany, a discovery or revelation of Christ before his incarnation. Because Jesus has been from eternity past. And it's interesting we have this view of Jesus that Jesus is just a nice person or another, a good teacher. But all throughout the scriptures we see when people see Jesus in his glory, they are throwing themselves on, his, on, their, on the ground to his feet and asking for forgiveness because they see his holiness. 
So if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this message, I want to plead with you, come to God for forgiveness. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. God is not just a a God who's going to just wipe things off one day and he's going to be a a guy who's going to close his eyes on your sins. No, he cannot do that because he's a righteous God. He has to punish sin and he will punish your sin. Come to him. The Bible says if we say you don't have sin, you are a liar. But if you confess your sins, he is just and righteous to forgive you and to cleanse you of any unrighteousness. If you're a Christian and you, you're listening to this message, and you're just a simple participant in the congregation, I want to encourage you to think deeply about who you're worshiping. First of all, think deeply about who you're worshiping in your private life. Do you really have a great view of God, a high view of God? Do you, do you really cherish the gospel the idea that jesus died for your sins because otherwise you'd be utterly lost and at the true mercy of god every day you live is all all the true mercy and grace of god do you have that vision i pray that you would you would have that i pray that that would be the reminder every day you open the bible to remember 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 everything you have beyond death what we deserve you and i deserve is a grace from god Stop thinking that you should be entitled to things because you're, you're not. We are not. The only thing we deserve is death. So that means that we need to start with the gospel and we need to live out the gospel. Worship is a lifestyle. We need to live it out. But then also that translates in the way we sing and the way we listen, the music we listen to. You see, a lot of the songs that we are listening out there or Christian songs that we have out there, they're just very man-centered, positive, encouraging music. It only makes you feel good about yourself. I, I, I'm all for positive, encouraging music that is all a lifting, lifting up Christ. Because at the end of the day, worship is not about you. It's about actually praising and giving worth to God. Do you see that kind of worship? Do you, do you seek those churches that worship God in a, that kind of way? I'm not talking here about going to churches that only sing hymns and only have a high view of God in a way that is a little bit too transcendent. They don't realize people that they don't realize that God is imminent is among us. I'm talking about the balance between God being high lifted up and also is with you in a day-to-day life. And if you're a Christian and you're involved in leading a, a church through music, remember. That your task at hand is to point people to the greatness of God and the amazing beauty of the gospel. If the songs you choose to sing as a congregation are not gospel-centered, they're not proclaiming the greatness of God, then most likely they're going to proclaim the greatness of human beings. Or at best, they'll be neutral, but you're not actually doing worship. You see, we are not supposed to cater to people's needs. We are supposed to do what's right and worship God. I remember this quote by Soren Kierkegaard, the Christian philosopher from Denmark who lived in the middle of 18th century. And he said this, that in our way of doing worship, and this is interesting, this was like 150 years ago in Denmark. But he had the same problem then as we have it today. He said, most people who are 
uh, doing church, they have this, this backwards, meaning they, they think that the audience is, imagine going to a theater, okay, seeing, uh, seeing a play. And, and he says, put that and try to put an analogy to church. Most people see the congregation as being the audience and the, the pastor and the leaders who are leading worship are the actors. And God is somewhere behind the scene as having a prompter who's kind of giving you what you should say. But again, the audience is the congregation. And he says, we have that backwards because actually the audience is God. And the worship leaders serve as prompters and the congregation are the ones who are, should perform, are the ones who are doing the actors, if you will. They are the ones who are worshiping and God is the audience and the worship leaders are the prompters, meaning that it should not be the focus on the worship leaders. So I want to encourage you as I close to consider just focusing on gospel-centered music, gospel-centered messages, gospel-centered worship. And in terms of music, I want to encourage you to maybe listen to some some modern gospel-centered music producers like Sovereign Grace Music, The Getty, City of Light. Um, you, You can find more and more of those in the Gospel Coalition. There's a bunch of articles with new gospel-centered singers and music writers that I think you will be encouraged by. Again, pray that as we think about this topic, that you really, really see God lifted up in a way that would exalt Kim more than anything else and will bless your heart in a way that is biblical and uh, will transform your life. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your message for us. I pray that whoever's listening to this message, that they will be challenged by what you want to share with us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see you high and lifted up and Jesus would be exalted in our, so that Jesus would be exalted in our midst and in our lives. I pray personally for myself, Lord, that your glory will lead me to repentance and not treat sin casually and treat worship casually. Help me, Lord, to see the, the blessing and the privilege I have to be able to worship you. Give me that insight, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.